Welcome to the Transformations with Jane podcast. I'm your host, Jane Nakata, a coach for women who want to live their best life wherever they may be. If you want to hear real stories about people living life their way, and you want to learn about having more peace of mind and confidence, then this is the podcast for you. I hope you'll enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Transformations with Jane podcast. Happy Women's Day, everyone. If you are listening on the 8th of March, 2021, then you are listening on International Women's Day. And so today, uh, my, my guest, Dr. Jackie Steele, and I decided that we would make sure that this episode in particular came out today. So if you're listening on International Women's Day, <laughs> happy, happy Women's Day. So my guest today is Dr. Jackie Steele. She is a trilingual political science professor, a published author, and a longtime Japan resident. She's also an expert in diversity, women's empowerment, diverse talent, mobilization, and inclusive decision-making. So she does lots of amazing things in Japan. And the reason that I asked her in particular to come on the show this month is because she was actually in Sendai on the the day of 3.11 and experienced the earthquake and tsunami up there, which is a lot closer to the epicenter than where I am down here in Fukushima. And she actually had, her daughter was just a small baby at the time. So we talk a little bit about that in this episode and also how that experience uh, then influenced the course of her life afterwards. And yeah, it's a really, really interesting story. And I hope that you will enjoy listening and it will open your mind a little bit about some of the things that we don't see behind the scenes around diversity issues in Japan and yeah, maybe open your eyes a little bit to what is going on and some of the actions that are being taken instead of, I know recently it's been, there's been a lot of talk about how far behind things are in Japan and why that may be true. There are also people who are working really hard on this too. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the Transformations with Jane podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Jane. Today, I have a very special guest for you, everyone. This is Dr. Jackie Steele. We have a lot in common. We were both in Tohoku when the uh, disaster happened 10 years ago, and I'm looking forward to hearing a lot about your um, experience at that time. But before we get started with that, could you... Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you got to Japan. Um, sure. Uh, I guess um, most people begin the story along the lines of, you know, where they were, were born and raised. And for me, that was in the suburbs of Vancouver in a city called Delta, a small sort of uh, suburban part of um, Vancouver area. And um, that's in Canada. Uh, and... Um, I came to Japan for the first time, I suppose, in 1997, and that was my sort of crash course into uh, finally wanting to be immersed in, in Japanese language and Japanese culture. I had been studying it for sort of seven years, three years in, in high school and four years in university, and I was just so keen to finally be immersed. Um, 
And I really wished to, I mean, at the time I was studying both political science and, uh, and East Asian studies with a focus on Japan. So I really wanted to understand Japanese citizenship more, how Japanese government politics worked, and really to be immersed finally in the language because I felt so strongly in my experience of learning French that until you actually have a crash course、mm-hmm. and are immersed, like,、um, Your, your brain doesn't fully commit, <laughs> I think. So, you would the... never set foot in Japan until that time? Right. That was the first time、oh, I, I arrived. Oh, here. Yeah. Okay. Like, I felt like, like, yeah, six, seven years studying outside of Japan and then like realizing you know nothing. <laughs> right. You know nothing. <laughs> exactly. You sort of listen heavily and intensely to see how it's actually spoken as a living language for the first time. Yeah, so how did you end up in Tohoku on 311? Well, I guess, <laughs> yeah, I had been,、um, I had, my first initial experience was in northern Nagano, and that's actually where we live now as well. And, and I had three years in northern Nagano, really had a fabulous experience working for the local government here. You really felt a sense of community and, and,、uh, furusato sort of engagement,、um, serving the population of like 35,000 Japanese nationals to try and bring, you know, multiculturalism and cross-cultural understanding, internationalization, gender equality themes, all the different things that I had been passionate about in Canada. Um, after I left Nagano, I went back to do graduate studies. Um, and so ended up pursuing sort of law and, and political science for my master's and PhD in, In Ottawa. But at that point, again, I sort of thought, oh, I wanted to bring back together my research agenda. My main research agenda was in you know, law and political philosophy of how do we build out diversity into the core of citizenship, like democratic citizenship, and our politics, our, our, our representative democratic institutions, and how do we build that out, and then our public policy outputs. Um, and how do we get diverse people elected into our parliaments from local to national? So that was my, my core passion for my, my law and PhD,、um, uh, political science with PhD. But I, I kept wanting to tie it back to Japan. I wanted to do sort of not only looking at these topics of diversity and citizenship in Canada and other countries, but really looking in depth at citizenship and diversity in Japan and electoral politics in Japan. So I, I applied for a postdoctoral fellowship through the Japan Association,、uh, Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. And was fortunate enough to be awarded it because they hardly ever gave out、uh, scholarships、um, for postdocs for the social sciences. It's a very natural sciences, I guess, focused、uh, postdoc program through the JP- JSPS. But thankfully, I was, I was chosen. So I, I was awarded this two year postdoctoral fellowship. And I had found a really fascinating professor. Miyoko Tsujimura, who was a, a law professor and probably one of the first feminist constitutionalists in Japan. And I, I wrote to her and I said, please let me come、uh, pursue my postdoctoral research on diversity and citizenship in Japan. And、um, she wrote back and, and was very interested in allowing me to join what she had at the time was a Uh, a gender law and policy research center at Tohoku University, which was, you know, absolutely perfect、uh, for all of my, my interests. And so、um, I first ha- had a, a brief stint in Tohoku for my PhD. 
for 10 months with her center. And in the process, we confirmed the applications for the postdoc. And then I was uh, given this beautiful opportunity to come back for two more years in Sendai um, to really pursue this uh, research agenda. And that's what I was in the middle of doing um, when uh, it was my second year of my postdoc when uh, the triple disaster hit. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing on that day. So it's interesting because we, so at the time, myself and, uh, and my partner from Canada, who, um, while we're not together at this moment, we, we remain good friends and in touch. Um, we had chosen to, um, have like in Japan, they do these, um, Maybe it's just a promotion, frankly, but they do these half birthday, okay. <laughs> half birthday celebrations for babies, right? <laughs> um, that's another reason to go and have photos, a photo shoot done. So we decided to have, take advantage of this coupon flyer to have, uh, our daughter's, um, photos taken to mark her half day, her half birthday. <laughs> and it's interesting because I remember so vividly we were living in Izumi. Ward, which is northern uh, Sendai, which is out more towards the mountains. Um, but this location of this photo, photo studio um, was in two locations that we could choose from. And one would have been sort of more at the Eon shopping mall that was down towards, uh, more towards the coastal area and towards Sendai City proper. And, and, you know, had I been working at the, on campus, uh, you know, at the Kawachi campus at Tohokudai, I would have gone in and then we would have branched out from there and gone to the other location, which naturally, of course, was very, very hard hit by the tsunami. As it turns out, we didn't ultimately, I decided I wouldn't combine with work that day and it would be too much to, to juggle. So we decided to go to the other location at the shopping center that was just north of us in in Izumiku. And thankfully, that was the location we chose because we were in the, you know, it was the second floor of one of the most large-scale shopping centers, as you can imagine, where you really feel like you're on more like the fourth floor, if I'm thinking in North American, sort of how many stories up you are, like really high. Um, but on that second floor, uh, we had finished the photo shoot, you know, done all the, the different poses. Um, and then I had had a chance to breastfeed my daughter, put her back in, in her regular clothes in the baby Bjorn. And we were just about to sit down and look at the, sh the photos when the shaking started. Oh my, well, you, I, yeah, that is, I was just getting goosebumps listening to you telling me about that choice that you just happened to make to not be in, in the uh, yes, in the other shopping mall that was yeah. just really so hard hit, and that you had your daughter close to you at that moment, yeah. and that we were together, right? Yeah. I mean, I always think yeah. about all the blessings that happened that day of not choosing the wrong <laughs> photo studio location, and then you know that we were happened to be all together. That we, um, you know, I have never lived through that large uh, scale earthquake, so. What I vividly remember, I mean, all of the lights immediately went out in the shopping mall in our store where we were in the photo photo studio uh, shop. Everything was shaking. And so the staff just went into action and started securing and moving all of the displays of clothing and hanging kimonos and everything away from where the customers needed to be in the middle and of course, it, there was so much rocking. I mean, I, my vivid 
thinking was, you know, I had to drop down to the floor to use my hands to not fall over. And thankfully, I had the baby Bjorn and that she was already in, my my Mm. daughter was in, because frankly, I wouldn't have been able to um, support myself um, with holding a child. I really was like all fours, (laughs) you know, really um, trying to stop from just falling over. Lights are out. The red lights are on and flashing. Um, you can't see all the way down into the deep, deep uh, dark of the um, shopping centers. It's all just now dark with the emergency lights on. And I just vividly felt like I feel like I am in one of the largest British Columbia ferries that sail off the coast of Vancouver to Victoria Island. And these are huge ferries. And I feel like I am on a ferry and I, our whole, the whole ferry, the whole building is moving in this tremendously slow rocking where you're, you know, when you're on a ferry and it tips so much that you got, you run and you get, you're pushed into the side and you have to hold the railing so that you don't fall. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we are in a building. Buildings don't move this way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. Like my, your brain can't compute. How is this building possibly moving in this eerie fairy-like way um, when it's not meant to, or it shouldn't, it, this is definitely unnatural and it went on for so long right i mean Mm, and when it finally stopped you know the the staff uh directed us quickly to the escalator out and to the roof and to where the parking lot is and then to move away from the building just away just in case and so yeah we're we were sort of in this pattern of trying to just through the dark with the emergency lights on move out into the light one of the individuals in the car park was clearly spooked out of their mind and so was attempting to leave them all but didn't know how to coordinate their body and so ended up simultaneously hitting the gas and then slammed the brakes and then hit the gas and then slammed the brakes to the point where the car went up on its nose (laughs) and was sort of you know, brought up into this rocking motion. And I thought, oh my goodness, what is happening with this car? Um, and so, our, I mean, our, our, we just sort of stood and waited until it was calmed and then moved as far as we could out away from the building and down around to the, to the lower other end of the car park where we felt we had complete distance from the building and complete distance from everything. And we just sat and we we waited and tried to make sense of if that's the state of people's mentality or emotional, you know, mindset on the roads, I don't, I don't want us to get in the car and try and move yeah. home. Yeah, that was sort of a similar experience I had um, here, like in Fukushima. It was, you know, we're several hundred kilometers further away from the epicenter. So theoretically, the shaking wasn't as bad as where you were. But mm-hmm. yeah, not being able to stand up. Right. Um, I was in the car at the time, and I had oh, just was just wow. coming out of a parking area. Thank God it was a, like an open parking area, and I was just about to go sort of out onto the road, and I noticed the car was shaking, so I stopped. But yeah, I thought my car was going to tip over. That's how much like right. I had a kind of like a people mover kind of, sort yes. of a, a little bit of a higher sort of car that really rocked with the earthquake, and and I was actually pregnant at the time. Oh wow! I was seven months pregnant. Um, and thinking, okay, well, at least my baby's on the inside here, <laughs> you know, whereas yours was on the outside. So I really, you know, 
that was one of my biggest things was at least I know where she is and she's 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 on the inside and, and <laughs> yes <laughs> wherever I'm going she's going you know yes um but Hands not free. being able to stand up and having to hold on to the wing mirror of the car because I decided I would get out of the car mm. which um just in case something you know came fell on it um right you yeah. know, so I thought well that's was surely this is trying to make decisions like this when everything's rocking and right. the adrenaline's pumping and all of that. Um, yeah, that was my experience. But, yeah, getting – then I realized I've got to do something. I can't just stand – once the shaking stopped again, I've got this car and I've got to do something. Right. And so I – some, and then I sort of looked up and I just saw this bus driving by, like, normal with people sitting on it. And it was like, what was that? What, what just happened? Wow. <laughs> just, you know, sort of this – craziness and then it was like it was over and 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 life was back to normal again because this bus just roared on by with right. passengers on it but i got into my car and tr- drove a little bit along the road and then i left it parked in a really random place and because <laughs> um, i knew my husband was there like luckily and same thing here is we happened to be very close to each other when this earthquake happened like normally he would be way across town at his office mm. and I would have been either at home or at work but you know miles away from each other but on that day we happened to be at the same shopping center just Such not exactly in the same place blessing. So <laughs> knew where to go to find him and he gro- jumped in my car and went and parked it somewhere and we stood in the car park and, and waited to hear what had happened you know what was going on and right. someone came out of he was at the tax office that's what he was doing and he'd forgotten something, and that was why I was even there, because he'd forgotten some document at oh. the tax office. And the people came out of the tax office and said, oh, it's been a, you know, a, what, a, like a, a rokkyo or something in Sendai or whatever. And we were like, oh, that's no good. Let's go home. Hmm. So we got in our car and drove home. Um, while the roads were shaking and moving, but we, somehow we were driving. And I yeah. think, surely that's not. And that's not, that's not what you're supposed to do, but <laughs> yeah. we just really wanted to get home. Yeah. And so that's what we did. Yeah. It's hard to know when you have incomplete information about the magnitude and the scale of what's happening. And we only can rely on our sort of what is our sensory, you know, inputs on what we've experienced. And I think had I not been in such a large shopping mall up so high, moving with such dramatic movement, I might not have uh, understood how how strong the earthquake was because maybe maybe you wouldn't feel it in the same way uh, if you were not, out no, on, down on the ground. On the ground yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and but, you were you were right sort of there, you know, up sort of <laughs> directly in a straight line from where the epicenter right. was, right? Yeah. Yes, so what did you do next? Did you hang out there or did you get home? We waited, right? We waited for at least, I would say, 45 minutes and we attempted to send a quick text message home to Canada to say, we're fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're together. We're fine. Uh, we're driving home now. Um, and people from the shopping mall, they brought out blankets and they really just uh, – impressive how they, they just uh, really knew what they needed to do next to support all the individuals who were, you know, customers who were out in the parking lot. Um, it was cold, obviously, outside. Um, and, and then eventually we did go home to, to check out the damage at home. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we'd lost all lifelines in our home and uh, had attempted to uh, – to stay put, um, but northern Sendai is closer to the mountains, so it is it is colder. It is near the mountains, uh, and so it it does get really damp inside the home. And you know the things were generally not too 
um, too badly shaken. I mean, the fridge you know, door flings open and everything falls out and other things fall off shelves and topple over. But on the whole, I think we were pretty lucky. And so it was just a question of what do we do now with a seven-month-old baby? Uh, if we don't have lifelines, and certainly at the time, uh, it didn't occur to me that we... We, we heard, you know, we have the aftershocks that happen. And so, you know, you're freezing cold, sleeping without heat all the first night. Um, uh, and in fact, our neighbors, they actually came over uh, the first, right after that, right after that first, on that first day, I should say, they came over and they knew we had a baby. And so they said, you know, Jackie, uh, Julie, come bring, bring Senna and bring, uh, come where it's warm. We have heat. We have an old-fashioned heater. Uh, we have an old-fashioned, uh, um, what do you call it, the like the hibachi things where you can do yakiniku and you can do a you know one-pot meal boiling mm. on the stove. And we've got dinner ready, so just come. Come be warm and come have dinner and uh, calm, calm down with us. And uh, so that was really <laughs> lovely. And... Um, and and really, you know, I <clears throat> my first realization was how important neighborly ties are. And I've always had such a strong community experience in my first my first uh, you know immersion into Japan in rural northern Nagano. Such a strong community that for me, when I got to Sendai, the first thing I did was like, okay, how do I join the Chonaikai? How do I join the neighborhood association? How do I talk to my neighbors? I went over and you know, we brought them. Uh, a welcome, hello, we're from Canada, blah, 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 and met them and made sure they knew who we were because, well, my parents would have just always, you know, taught us to do that. That's just being good neighbors. But, um, yeah, it's so important that we know our neighbors in times of disaster because they're the first lifelines that actually reach out and say, are you okay? And if you're not, come share, you know, what we have so that you can be okay. And they you know, had listened, they had been through a major earthquake, you know, 20 years or 15 years earlier. And so as a, as an important source of information, right, on, on what happens next, they could at least say, well, when we had a major earthquake that was about 10 or 15 years ago, Izumiku was not the priority in order to, you know, getting uh, lifelines back up. It was really city center. And then it was core services around the different areas of downtown Sendai and then working out and we're, we're, you know, the neighborhood, Bedtown, so don't expect lifelines to come back up soon. Uh, it took a week for it to come back 10 years ago, and that was only like a magnitude 6. And this is now looking to be a much higher, much more impact, plus there's a tsunami going on. Um, so they said, you know, please just be aware that probably our lifeline situation is not going to be handled mm -hmm. anytime soon. Factor that into your decision making. Mm -hmm. And that was the most important piece of information that I got. I mean, you know, that evening, we went back to a very cold house. We had cleaned up as best we could for the damage. We realized that we now had a full fridge of food that was going to slowly, and freezer, that would slowly melt, mm. <laughs> thaw out, and, and we needed to think forward about meal planning and how to sort of stretch the things that we didn't want to lose because they were going bad. We you know, drove down and, and tried to get some uh, water supplies because we thought, well, if we don't have access to water with uh, with a baby, we might need access to clean water. So we we knocked on the door of the 
the local uh, shop that uh, was really a sake asan, <laughs> but they they also had uh, bottled waters and such. And so we asked if they might, you know, be willing to sell us some water. And um, they hadn't even had a chance to go into their back room and to the store, which was obviously just so many of the bottles had just uh, mm. broken. And but they went back into their back storage because they saw we had a baby, and they said, "Oh, like chotmatikrasai," you know. And then they mm. came back. And I think took pity on us and sort of, sort of said, well, I only have a case of bottled water. You're going to have to take it all because uh, I can't, I don't have change. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, they were almost wanting to make sure that we took the whole, the whole box because there were other people that were sort of peeking their heads out now and, mm. and they didn't want it to be like a favoritism probably, but they realized that, you know, we had a baby and probably will need this. So, you know, thousand yen handed over and we took the whole box and thanked them and for for their generosity and um and then had that solved a little bit and then of course we started the whole night of aftershocks every hour on the hour uh yeah. where you don't get any sleep at all um you're yeah, constantly like every 20 minutes or something it was it was yeah it, was it felt really like often, you know constantly yeah. being woken up and not being sure if we needed to be grabbing the baby and jumping down outstairs into our car because we're in a second floor of a house on the edge of what is a fairly steep cliff, <laughs> mm. wondering if we should really be staying in this house or not. But, you know, um, all told, it was thankfully fine. Um, and the next day we had friends who were in the downtown core of Sendai who said, you know, we at the restaurant, we have we have food, we're making onigiri, we're, we're you know, it's warm. Again, bring the baby and just come, come get warm, come have food, let us, you know, make sure that you're okay. Um so the second day, and you know, we're listening. I was sitting outside in my in the car, listening to NHK on the radio. Every once in a while, I would go out, but I didn't want to waste the bat, you know, the car battery or the gas. But I needed to go out. I didn't have one of those, couldn't couldn't. Uh, I didn't have one of those wind up uh, radios that they gave us an orientation. I couldn't find where it was. Of course, this is the other piece of make sure you know where your equipment is. Um, so I would go to the car and I would sit and listen to the radio on NHK to try and grasp the information. Um, and I would hear all the tsunami alerts. But I didn't really understand what that meant. Like concretely, you know, you hear tsunami alert, tsunami alert, and they, they repeat. Mm. But if you've never experienced a tsunami, and if you don't have any sense or visual understanding of how big a tsunami would ultimately be in light of, you know, this size of an earthquake, I had no imagination or ability to understand the depth of what it meant as as a threat. So it didn't fully register. And then when we went to our friend's restaurant the next day, for the very first time, uh, you know, 24 hours later, we saw on the TV, right. the images just right. over and over on the TV. And I just thought, oh, my goodness. Like, if, if, I mean, earthquake alone, it probably would have been, you know, m several weeks to get lifelines back if it was just the earthquake. But now there's been this massive tsunami so I was just doing the math and thinking, okay, our sector of, you know, Izumi, where we have no lifelines, there's not going to be attention there because it's not needed there. It's not the most, you know, critical place. And so now as a parent with a seven-month-old child, whether or not we are changing, you know, baby's diapers and trying to do uh, baths that are with not really warmed up water in minus three inside our house because it's colder inside the house than if we go outside where there's sun, that's not sustainable for a baby. And so text messages finally started coming through from our friends in 
Chikuma City, Nagano, which is my hometown, really in Japan.、Mm. And they were sending these messages saying, Jackie, bring the baby. Jackie, come. Just come and bring the baby. Just if you can come, get in the car. If you happen to have, you know, the ability, please come stay with us. And so at that point, we made the decision. We had three quarters of a tank of gas. We packed up everything that we could possibly pack up in terms of food that we could salvage and, and supplies and things we might need and clothing and everything, diapers, everything we could possibly need into the car. And we made an attempt to go through Yamagata and across to Nagano. Of course, the gas lines had been stopped due to the earthquake and they needed to monitor. So you couldn't get gas in the city of Sendai. We were th- again blessed with the three quarters of a tank,、mm. which meant we could get out to Yamagata. And、uh, the、uh, highway closed shortly after we ch- made the decision. It closed again, but we managed to get out into Yamagata and then started,、uh, found our way to a little town called Oguni Machi, I think is the name. And we waited for gas for five hours in a lineup.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone just lined up. We just lined up for five hours and waited our turn and was queuing around the blocks and around the blocks and around the blocks and around the city and around the town. And there was about 30 parking attendant volunteers all out just helping make, maintain.、Mm-hmm. Order to get everybody in line to get their tank of gas. We managed to do a full a fill up. And then we knew that we could do, if we had to do back roads or highway, we had enough that we could just go in one shot all the way to Nagano. And,、um, yeah, so that was our, our choice finally. And so we spent 48 hours, I guess, in, in Sendai before deciding that no, we really needed to have more support. And we, Hadn't really thought about going to an evacuation center, but frankly, you know, at the time as a, as a same sex couple with a child,、uh, <laughs> when you're not seen legally and recognized、mm-hmm. legally as a family,、um, not the most hospitable environment to be attempting to go to a, an evacuation center, frankly, as not only as foreigners, but also as a foreign same sex couple with,、uh, you know, a, A baby who looks half Japanese and half white,、um, and people not understanding wouldn't, you know, so it wasn't really something that came up as a, as something we considered. I just automatically thought, I have a community in Nagano. My community is offering and telling me to come and stay with them. And if we can get there, that is our most psychologically、yeah. safe environment. Yeah, having somewhere to go. A lot of people, I mean, and probably your neighbors in Sendai had nowhere to go. That was their life、yeah. in Sendai, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, and removing yourself from the situation, I think, if you can, is, is really important, especially if you have, yeah, little babies or the same for me. I was pregnant, so I didn't want to stay in Fukushima and be, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially at seven months, it's not when you want to be going into labor. In, no, in and, and, in the disaster zone. So, yeah. And I wonder how you had thought about it. But I mean, we had really been within that first 48 hours, the little bits of information. So, our neighbors telling us, help is not coming soon. Think about that, factor that into your decisions. Lifelines are going to be gone for up to three, maybe four weeks. You have a seven month old baby. There's a tsunami that's now devastated the whole coast. The local governments in that area are low capacity. The prefectural governments in those areas, the national government has to make decisions how to support from a distance. These are all huge, you know, challenges in terms of as a, someone who, you know, studied political science and understands the need for multi-level coordination across governments and private sector actors and 
you know, resources, stores wiped out whole communities. Where are the resources coming if you're in a situation of the resources have been wiped out in that, in that not only just in the first town, but all of the surrounding <laughs> yeah. towns. Mm. So you have to go further and further and further out. Um, and then, of course, you know, the impact of radiation. Once we learned and we saw the pictures of the tsunami on the TV and of Fukushima and the threat of the nuclear meltdown and of the radiation effects, and we know that the radiation impacts on babies, of mm. course, is the biggest, biggest impact in terms of genetic mutation. And so at that time, there was still winds blowing north with the winter winds coming north to Sendai. Yes. So we were being given different advice on, well, from a, and I was, I managed to get a phone call uh, and to get information uh, f from Canada as well, um, of, of, you know, advice saying you don't want to be in an, in, 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 in an area where, you know, Senna will be affected by mm. the radiation. So if you can get downwind, from where Fukushima is, that would be safer. Because I was thinking, well, do we go north, like even further to Akita? Or, uh, you know, where my, my partner had contacts um, and friends, or do we go inland to in towards the, the mountains of Nagano? And ultimately it came down to, well, the winds are still blowing north. And yeah. so from that perspective, going inland so that we were completely, you know, west of Fukushima, and in the mountains would mean that the radiation effects, if ever, you know, that turned into a much more significant meltdown, we would be a little bit more <laughs> protected. Mm -hmm. But you don't know. I mean, these are, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm not a radiation specialist. And so you're, you're using imperfect information it's to make some pivotal, yeah. pivotal decisions as a parent about how to protect this baby, right? Mm -hmm. And how to protect this child in these very strange, uh, conditions that, you know, I had never really been prepared for. So how do you use that information wisely and then make the best decision you can, right? I mean, exactly. that's all you can do. Yeah. And yeah, you made the right decision. And it was lucky that you could get where you wanted to go. You had somewhere yes. to go. Yeah. So obviously, this had a huge impact on your life. Yes. Forward. So yes. tell us, Tell us what you did, you know, once this all calmed down and did you saw a, maybe you saw a chance to do something to help uh, Tohoku in that. Tell us a little bit about your field work that you've been doing. Sure. I mean, at the time I felt, you know, we three weeks evacuated to Nagano, three and a half weeks staying out where it's safer. But then there's a point at which, okay, if Fukushima was under control, do we go back? to finish my postdoc, you know, I had another four months, five months left on my, my two year postdoc. Um, lots of different advice being sent, you know, just come to Canada, just come home, just leave, just, you know, but mm. I mean, how can you, I, I didn't, I, I didn't really see fit to have us just uproot and, and leave. Um, so we did go back to Sendai and, uh, you know, tried to get back somewhat to normal. Um, I had really hoped to to help, and, and through my Taiko community, there were certain efforts to try and get resources up to Tohoku, but I found just restoring our own family life and our own <laughs> security within our house to be um, challenging enough with the seven-month-old. Um, and so that consumed a lot of just, you know, sorting through everything in our home and, and cleaning up all the messes, and that's, you know, a good month and a half of sorting and getting organized. So I felt this kind of guilt that I couldn't help right then and there. Yeah. 
and, and to give back. And I thought, well, should I, I mean, do I just, I mean, I, I speak Japanese. Do I just leave, you know, Sena with Julie and, and I'll go up and I'll volunteer. But then I couldn't imagine doing that because I'm breastfeeding and I'm the one who obviously is therefore essential to Sena. So I'm not going to do that. So I just felt that it was very challenging, right? I really wished to be able to, to do more, but couldn't and really knew I had to focus on care of our family uh, with a non-Japanese speaking spouse and of course a, a breastfeeding baby. Um, but it remained with me that I wanted to do something. And so after my postdoc, um, I had a brief uh, uh, contract working at Simon Fraser University as a political teaching political science uh, before actually returning to Japan um, through a job offer at the University of Tokyo at the Institute of Social Science. And so I, I accepted that position as an associate professor and it opened up a chance to really build a research agenda around looking at Tohoku reconstruction from the perspective of feminist public policy and what are the gaps around how we think about disaster risk, about risk governance, about, you know, reconstruction policies that were coming out of the Japanese government that were largely not tuned into women's needs or the diversity of foreigners' needs or of LGBTQ families' needs in the post-disaster context. And so I thought... Maybe this is the way I can contribute is by merely building out this research um, agenda. So I, I created a, a Japan-Canada research network on gender diversity and Tohoku reconstruction that brought together, you know, all of the leading mentors who I worked with in Canada, feminist political scientists who were public policy specialists and governance specialists to work with my uh, colleagues at the Institute of Social Science at the University of Tokyo. And we had this lovely sort of intellectual exchange and policy and field work exchange around where are the gaps and then how do we map for public policy experts and for civil servants and for Japanese politicians how do we how do we map that for them so we we wrote uh, a fairly important preliminary report in 2015 was finally published uh, or sorry 2013 we published it with our preliminary research results from about, I would say, 10 different scholars uh, in Japan and Canada. And it was bilingual. Um, and it, you know, it was picked up by Governor Tasso um, in, in Japan, in northern, uh, in Tohoku, in Iwate, um, among others who, who read the Japanese version and, and or the English version. We had a huge uh, conference in, at the University of Ottawa and uh, collaborations with the Japanese embassy in Ottawa and then had a big event at the Canadian embassy um, here in Tokyo just to put these issues right on the radar that reconstruction you know post-disaster reconstruction is a policy area where we need the diversity of women's realities and the diversity of men's realities to inform an evidence-based approach to you know meeting the needs of those most affected at the grassroots and if we don't have those channels opened up to hear from the diversity at the grassroots all the way channeled to Kasumi Gaseki and to the, to the diet and to parliamentarians and to governors and, and, and parliamentarians or politicians in the region. We need to channel that information back so that the, the policies are, are working for not just the mythical Japanese male salaryman mm. with a dependent, you know, housewife and two kids, which is the only model of, of family formation that seems to really figure at the heart of all law and policy in Japan. And so you have so many exclusions of so many different families, so many different diverse types of families, common law, 
Common-law heterosexual families are not seen as families legally. All same-sex families are not seen legally as families. All of those families don't get support post-disaster reconstruction because they don't show up as legal families if they're not in the marital system, the, the family registry mm -hmm. system. So when you're handing out, and we've seen this with COVID, frankly, as well, when you're handing out sort of, you know, supports to families, and it's always to the head of the household as representative of that legal family, they're missing so many family formations by virtue of not having that diversity of family formations recognized legally as an option. And, and you can't even get information about your family members unless you're legally defined as family. So you cannot walk in and say, I'm trying to find out if my partner is deceased, was yeah. killed in this context. You can't go into the hospital and get information. You can't go into city hall and get information if you're not legal family. And so there's so many families, Japanese families, international families, same-sex families, common-law heterosexual families, who I felt, you know, and, and, you know, foreigners who don't speak Japanese, I was thinking, oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I speak Japanese fluently. I can follow. I read laws and policies all day as my research. And all the same, you know, that's why I had resilience in these contexts to find information, to get the information, to talk to my neighbors, to figure out what I needed to know, to understand NHK reportings on radiation and Hoshasen and all of these different technical terms. I could follow that. What if you couldn't? What if you couldn't follow all of that information? How do you make good choices and good decisions as, you know, a, a foreign resident in Japan? If we don't have these, I guess, attentiveness to uh, thinking about the diversity of each community, and then how does each city hall think about supporting that diversity? And mm -hmm. how do we build resilience and allyship and solidarity across Japanese nationals and foreign nationals? So there's a safety net. There's a linguistic safety net and, and information sharing. And there's there are you know ways in which people don't get left out or left behind because of a language barrier or a legal family definition barrier. And so... That was the main thing I felt, well, from a sort of public intellectualism project and research agenda, if we could move the dial on bringing this, you know, Japan-Canada intellectual exchange forward to enrich the policy conversation in Japan post-disaster, that was probably the only and the best way I could maybe contribute. Well, I love it how that you found your chance to take a turn. You know, your turn wasn't Start, <laughs> it wasn't right? right away, right? Yeah, exactly. And I had exactly the same experience here in Fukushima. Like, you know, half of my city was, not half of it, but the coastal part of it was destroyed. And I couldn't go out and help dig right. ditches. And no, well, pregnant. You know, I'm, I've got a small baby. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and I had to stay inside. I couldn't be outside with a small baby when there's, you know, no. still a lot of radiation around. For sure, of course. So, and, you know, we got an interview I think it's the week after this from Angela who saw yes. a chance to take a turn straight away and she was in the right place at the right time yes. to do that uh -huh. and yeah you took your turn and helped in an amazing way with only the skills that you the a unique combination of skills and languages that you have so yeah that's really fantastic that you found your way to take a turn and to do what you can do well and i must say i mean from my perspective i had worked you know back in canada um with an, an organization called the national association of women in the law which was really a, a law reform agenda feminist movement um actor within the federal uh, you know level of canada to to help you know, reforms going through the national parliament or house of commons to be enriched with the views of diverse women across Canada. And we had worked on, you know, 
family law and worked on the Divorce Act and we'd worked on employment and labor law. We'd looked on unemployment insurance. We'd worked on all of these different laws. But it had never occurred to me that disaster risk was a law and policy framework that was such a pivotal feminist issue Mm, until I experienced 311 and then realized, wow, this is an area where Japan and Japan's had significant mobilization of feminist movement activism since Kobe and the Hanshin Awaji earthquake. And so there's this tremendous resource. And I thought, well, Canada doesn't have a high awareness of, you know, disaster risk or what we call emergency preparedness or hazard risk from a feminist lens, because in Canada, we just take extreme climate to be sort of that's just life, right? Yeah. We don't see it as a natural disaster. It's just extreme climate. Um, and so there isn't sort of this well-developed feminist lens around disaster risk uh, governance in Canada. So I thought, wow, you know, Canada can, from this policy framework, can really learn from Japanese feminist movements and, and actors and disaster preparedness in Japan. But at the same time, Canada's a leader on intersectional diversity and gender equality and, and LGBTQ inclusion and, and these other facets of diversity and citizenship that Japan could could learn from. So it opened up this really wonderful research um, opportunity. And from that, I ended up taking on two more ethnographic uh, participatory action research projects that were very small, but very rewarding. Um, One was literally tracking the feminist law reform movement uh, led by Domoto Akiko and the Gender Equality and Disaster Risk Reduction, uh, the Japan Women's Network for Disaster Risk and Gender Equality. I've got that backwards. I'm going to say that one more time. <laughs> the, Jap- <laughs> yeah, the, Japan, <laughs> yeah, the Japan Women's Network for Gender Equality and Disaster Risk Reduction. And um, this is a the most fascinating coalition of uh, women's organizations and senior experienced uh, former politicians, former public policy experts, policymakers, bureaucrats at the national government, people who've been working, women who've been within different women's organizations across Japan. And this coalition of women's organizations mobilized um, under the leadership of uh, Domoto Akiko-sensei and uh, Hara Hiroko-sensei, two uh, individuals who I definitely take to be, uh, you know, role models for me and sort of feminist role models and, and, and political politically savvy and research intense um, actors who know how to really mobilize coalitions for for change and for law reform so that it's not, you know, standing on the outside protest, but no, they are deeply connected also through to, you know, inside tracks of political influence to be able to to get access to actually get a hearing so that they were pivotal in bringing the voices of women from across Tohoku to political leaders. And certainly uh, Domoto Akiko was a former governor of Chiba. And that status that that gave her in terms of access to say, you know, when, when, when governor, former governor Domoto asks for a meeting, you know, you take the meeting, right? Like political actors take that meeting. And so she has been such an interesting and inspiring person to open the doors and make sure that the voices of women and working with an amazing coalition uh, of women in her organization, who I, I think are so impressive. And, you know, they're, they're a sort of 50 to 80, late 80s-year-old um, generation of tremendously experienced women who've seen it all, right? They've had a long life. They've seen it all. They've seen the lack of progress on many fronts for gender. They've seen the intransigence within politics and public policy. Um, and they are strong. And they 
they, you know, put forward very strong feminist uh, law reform uh, change requests and petition the government for these changes. So I experienced that and I, and I tracked their efforts, both trying to inform and change domestic laws in Japan, but also the international uh, framework on disaster risk reduction that led to the international agreement in 2015. Um, and they were pivotal actors in that as well. So that was one side is sort of following the feminist movement uh, law reform agenda. And then I also went with the second one, uh, research program, and I collaborated with a, a wonderful NPO called Women's Eye, uh, led by Ishimoto Megumi, and did a participatory action research on young women at the grassroots in Tohoku who were engaged in rebuilding their communities. And these are these were twenty to forty, forty-two, five, you know, years old young women. They had never been involved with any kind of activism or gender equality or feminism or any of that. They were just individuals trying to make a difference in their community. And um, through participating and observing, but also participating in the leadership training that NPO Women's Eye was delivering to them through these grassroots academies, I got to interact with them. I was able to share you know, different insights from feminist academia, share about diversity and different concepts of how we think about diversity in democracy and within political science. And how do we think about it from the perspective of, you know, building a community that would be sumiyasui, uh, easy to live in for a diverse group of individuals and, and with the, the full diversity being respected. Um, and so they really then, you know, and their leadership locally, um, I think have, and they're all in different fields. There are, you know, I've in interviewed on my li live stream uh, that I host on Tuesdays, um, Miz uh, Mizuho Sugeno, who is, uh, you know, a young leader in Fukushima who's been involved with organic farming and soil restoration and, and bringing back and revitalizing the agricultural um, community in, in Fukushima in a very difficult uh, circumstance. So you have agriculture and soil restoration, or you have people who are in the NPO nonprofit space trying to create more space for women. Uh, women and children in the public spaces or in the, you know, mobilizing to get a park built within the reconstruction funds because no one thought to put money for, for a park, you know, um, yeah. or, the, you know, a midwife and, and a medical clinic owner who's doing pre and post maternal care to pregnant women while she straps on her own baby to her back and then goes out all around um, Iwate to, to help, you know, pre and post maternal care for pregnant women in Iwate. Um, post-disaster. So just phenomenally courageous women with vision, and they're so young, but seeing a need, seeing that they have the skills, they have community ties, they know who to call all the other women in their networks who they call on and say, we need to get this done, and they get to work, and they 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 bring the change. Um, and it's so inspiring to see, you know, the change agency that comes through their work. And of course, there's battles, and you, you run up against the civil servants at the local city hall who look at you like you don't make sense and that you're insane because you think that it's important for women and children and, and parents to have a place to belong and have a place to take children and to not be trapped at home with with babies and children that community building is a part of <laughs> a part of mm. you know rebuilding um the kokoro no care or the or the the emotional well-being and so but not necessarily finding support from local civil servants. And so then being networked, they were networked through this NPO Women's Eye, networked as young women leaders. So there was a whole tribe that they had, a whole group of women who 
could empathize with what they were going through, with what the challenges they were, the conservatism they were meeting locally, um, people not willing to support their ideas when the ideas were meeting a concrete need that really needed solving for a certain demographic of the population that matters to rebuilding and to, to restoring the community well-being, but that wasn't always recognized, uh, I think, by many of the male-dominated um, political and government spaces that had a, a much more classic view of, you know, what rebuilding is about infrastructure and building a new elder care facility and and those kinds of things. But, you know, in, an, in, a, in a city where you have aging population and declining birth rate, you know, I remember this one interviewee of mine, she said, really, we're spending millions of dollars on an elder care facility that's going to be 21st century when we know that our pop declining population is, is such that the actual individuals who would be in using that care facility is shrinking rapidly in the next 10 years. And we don't have daycare. We don't have daycare, enough daycare for working parents for us to stay and choose to stay in this city and go back to work because there's no daycare centers. To have more children. And, yeah. To, we, but you want us to have to children. Have, you want, yeah. Right. But you want all of it. But you want us to stay and have children, but you're not going to build a child care center or, you know. Mm. So she's she's raising the alarm bell on these gaps, because, of course, we know that within local governments, often the gender equality sections of City Hall and the disaster preparedness sections of City Hall are not coordinating. They're not they're not talking to one another. They're in silos. And so the preoccupations of gender equality are not being mainstreamed into the disaster preparedness, nor in the reconstruction philosophy. Mm. And there's these really big gaps. So it's been a, an honor to, to really follow all of these young women leaders in, in Tohoku at the grassroots and to see um, the last nine years of their growth into finding strong voice, into meeting the criticisms or being able to sort of find their voice and say, no, what I'm actually proposing is a legitimate problem that needs addressing. I am a citizen taxpayer. These are real concerns. If we want to have, you know, rebuilding in our community, it must also make sure that the city planning is working for the parents in the community, for the women in the community, for the children in the community. And these are not afterthoughts. And so it's interesting that these women who had zero connection to gender equality, consciousness raising, or feminism, they've come to these very strong realizations of, you know, where Japan needs to shift and where their local communities and the bureaucrats and the local government view needs to evolve in terms of integration of women and diversity into the policy structures um, and the planning for community building and and they have very strong voices but it's it's been through their own individual personal journeys and leadership journeys that I find it so interesting and so distinctly different from the 60 to 90 year olds who are seasoned feminist law reform actors and and activists I would say and so it's kind of a character yeah. foiled in these two these two research groups that I've been following yeah, it must be interesting to see the difference. And, you know, hopefully these up-and-coming women will become powerful members of the leadership in the future. Well, and so, one of them ran for uh, Fukushima City Council and got elected and is now one of the, the prominent voices for women in Fukushima City Council. So that's been very exciting to see. What's her name? Maki Sahara. All right, we'll look her up. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Well, thank you so much for giving us the inside view on this because it would be very... I mean, even living in Fukushima, I 
you know, I just wouldn't see this on a daily basis. You know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really fascinating to me. And I'm looking forward to following up on some of these things that you've mentioned <laughs> and to be a little bit more aware of the things that we do have in Fukushima are due to the fact that, you know, pot potentially a lot of women stood up and said, hey, where are my children going to play because we can't go outside? Or, right. You know, um, we need this because, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of thoughts sort of went into the the kokoro of the people in Fukushima, you know, because of the mental damage that people suffered here. Yes. You know, um, obviously we, because we are in Fukushima, but right. you know, in the rest of the, um, of the disaster zone, you potentially weren't in Fukushima, maybe didn't, weren't on receiving so much of that. But I think um, a lot of women here definitely stood up and fought for what they thought was needed for their children. And it, so, it was, yeah. it's true. I mean, certainly Maki Sahara, she actually was, you know, self-defined housewife who, who, who had a small business that she ran um, out of her home part-time, I would say, and then was brought into the Fukushima 30-year project as an NPO that was the first ones on the ground doing all of the testing of the uh, foods for radiation counts mm. and also the full body counter and she was she was brought in because the sort of men who were running the organization were you know wanting to be doing the science and the and the and the measurements and that side of the equation but they needed they needed someone with communication skills and sort of hospitality uh angle who could welcome people and reassure them that yes it's okay it is safe to come and use this machine to measure yeah. your fruits and your vegetables mm -hmm. to check and yes the full body counter is safe and if you would like to do it we would encourage you to come yes it is safe for your children and so Maggie became the face right she became the face of the organization reassuring the mothers and the parents to feel safe to come and really harness those resources to become informed about do you want to have a sense of what is, you know, the body count that you currently are registering for radiation? Do you want to be aware? And then she led the discussion groups for mothers so that mothers, notwithstanding, you know, your opinion on the matter, whether you think it's important to leave Fukushima, whether you want to stay in Fukushima, whether you think it's safe for your children, not safe for your children, mothers needed a space, a safe space to talk about it. And to be able to say what they thought and to be heard, non-judgment. And so she would lead these, these important groups for mothers, discussion groups. And that is a really important contribution to the democratization locally, the local democratization of Fukushima and of the individual residents who, and particularly the women, as citizens, to be able to have this space to participate in an exchange of opinions, non-judgmental, to learn from other people's views and still decide what's right for yourself. Everyone makes their own family choice, but to have that space. And, and so she was very pivotal in facilitating sort of that amalgamation of, of a safe space for mothers wanting mm -hmm. to grapple with so, it, so that mothers were not so isolated in yeah. struggling with these challenges. You know, she, she then ran on that platform. She ran, you know, for city government and said, I continue to be devoted to nonpartisan. She's bringing the voices of, of women and mothers and diversity to our, our city council. And, it's, of course, it's such an important contribution to the local electoral politics now in Fukushima. Um, 
but you know, who would have? She would have never have imagined that that was her life course. <laughs> had the Earth had, had the triple disaster not happened, so exactly. these are the fascinating stories that I, I think is so exciting. That as a feminist researcher, and now I guess as a as a diversity and innovation consultant, bringing that research background and the evidence based approach to how do we think about diversifying our organizations and our policies and our companies and our public debates on these issues to make sure we're hearing all of the ideas and views of all of the groups in society. Um, it's so exciting to learn. And I've learned so much from the women that I have interviewed uh, throughout these, these research projects. Um, and I'm grateful. So it's, it's been lovely to, to amplify them and I'm featuring them in our, in, in the, in the live stream series that I'm doing and I hope people will, will tune into that. So maybe we could share some yeah, of that information exactly. on how people can find most of them are in Japanese. I will admit. Um, but for people who do speak Japanese, please do tune in and listen. And then, uh, there's a couple of them that are also in English and, um, on my website, um, which is, uh, enjoy.com. Enjoy is divided by a dash. So E N dash J O I with an I. Um, dot com, I will be also developing a part of my website to feature uh, all of the research insights that have come from the last uh, 10 years, uh, working on disaster risk governance and diversity. And um, I'm teaching that at Sophia University as, as just sort of a one-off for fun every year. Once a year, I teach that um, to try and make sure that the these topics and this research agenda keeps uh, keeps moving ahead within the Japanese different universities systems as well. Yeah, so I will definitely put a link in the show notes for that. So if you would like to um, see some, like see more about some of these stories, follow um, the link to the live streams. And yes, yeah, if even if you don't um, know Japanese, maybe you can follow up on some of the people who sure. are in there and find out more about them. Yeah, right. And if people are wanting any kind of practitioner-focused workshops on you know, intersectional diversity or gender equality and diversity, LGBTQ uh, issues in Japan and how organizations can perform better in a holistic way. Um, yeah, we're, we're, I've been very fortunate to, to build a really interesting team of both, you know, researchers, policy experts, practitioners, civil, social, civil society organization representatives. Uh, and we're working together as sort of a multi-stakeholder team to practice DNI in a very different way, uh, to really have a broader view of how I think organizations and companies can move the dial in these areas more pragmatically. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I have had a crash course in so many, so many <laughs> topics today, I feel like. Thank you so much. You've really opened my mind to look a little bit more with open eyes at things around here in Fukushima. So I really well, appreciate it. Thank you it. for the invitation. It's so exciting that I'm so glad that you're featuring all of these different stories. It's so important that we keep remembering and, uh, yes, yes. and that we keep going back to Tohoku and, you know, bring our tourism dollars when it's COVID safe um, to keep supporting those economies. Uh, Cause they, I think there's still lots of work to be done. There is, there is, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Jackie. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Jane. And I guess we didn't mention it, but it's a happy International Women's Day, right? <laughs> and <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the anniversary, but I guess at the international level today is exactly uh, International Women's Day. So congratulations and happy yeah. IWD Day. <laughs> well done, everyone. Keep on, keep on moving forward. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that was the interview with Jackie Steele. I hope you enjoyed that. I know, as I just mentioned in the episode itself, that it really did open my eyes to a lot of the work that's going on 
by women to get women's issues and diversity issues brought to the front and center when decision big, big decisions and planning is being done. So thank you for that, Jackie. And so we talked about some uh, live streams that Jackie has been doing. And by the time you're hearing this episode, there will be quite a few on Facebook that you can see already. So if you want to have a look in the show notes, you will find a list, uh, a link there for, for where you can go and see one of the Facebook Lives, and you'll find the other ones there as well. So definitely pop over and have a look at those. If you'd like to know more about some of the people that were mentioned today, I think you'll find that there are some Facebook Lives with those people, as well as other people who were not mentioned. So go and check those out, and you can follow up more about some of the amazing uh, women that were mentioned in our show today. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you have enjoyed hearing about this. And yeah, let me know, uh, you know, get, uh, drop me a message on Instagram. I'm Transformations with Jane or over on Facebook. I'd love to hear your feedback, your ideas for future guests. And also please share this episode with someone who you think could benefit knowing about um, what amazing things that women are doing here in Japan. And please review and rate the podcast in iTunes. That would really help. Thank you so much for listening as always. And I'll see you again next week. We have on the show next week, we have a really, really awesome episode coming up with Angela Ortiz. And yeah, it's it's a great great interview one of one of my best ones so far i think so yeah definitely please li uh, listen in again next week for that one thank you so much have a good day bye bye